Hello, friends. Today on Mind Your Manners, we welcome three distinguished guests to our virtual roundtable. Mark Reniff, a writer on the Tharda Project, joins us alongside Brent Bailey, editor for the Hardbacks, with returning guest Kerry Mould, a seasoned member of the Harn Writers. We'll discuss why the Republic of Tharda is a unique treasure trove for your next RPG adventure and explore the process behind the updates to the original material. Enjoy. Mark, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, Mark Reniff. I have been a Harn devotee for many many years i first got into uh into harn in i want to say it was 1985 ish i was in uh middle school if i recall correctly and uh i went in havesies on the original harndex folio uh it was 20 bucks and i borrowed 10 bucks from a friend uh under the theory that uh that if if he lent me the money i would run the game um, and that's how it all started. I've been doing it uh, basically ever since then. I've used Harn in a number of uh, a number of different games, uh, from one shots to uh, long running campaigns, and used a variety of different different role playing game systems. Ironically, never Harn Master. Most recently, um, I've been doing stuff with. Uh, I had a long running campaign uh, that was run using Shadowrun three rules, if you can believe that. And recently, I've been doing a lot of stuff with Apocalypse World. Very cool. Um, and what's your current uh, engagement with the Harn Writers these days? So I've been with the Harn Writers group since, I want to say, 20, 2010 or 2011. I first met Brent at Harn Moot in 2009. Um, and I've worked on a variety of different uh, projects since then, uh, mostly religious orders and um working with uh expanding expansions for uh settlements and cities and that sort of things my sort of focus is i'm the guy that always says we should follow the money you know if you want to figure out the justification for why anything is happening follow the money um, i'm a big fan of building in conflicts of interest and so um much of the work that that I have done has um, has focused on that and on uh, the religious orders. I think the first first article I did was the um, Order of the Balm of Joy, uh, the expansion of that religious order. Um, when we were looking to redo the Tharda Kingdom module in in 2021, I had been the one who had been running. Um, uh, campaigns and, and adventures in Tharda uh, the most actively and had done a lot of work previously with um, coming up with the entire sort of Thardic Senate and uh, doing a lot of sort of thought onto into Thardic politics because they were germane to the campaign that I was running. And so um, when it came time to to do that expansion, uh, Brent asked me to do the lead on that and I enthusiastically jumped at it. It was a it was a fun project and I'm I was very, very um, happy to be a part of it. And speaking of Brent, uh, Brent, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Brent Bailey. Uh, I started using the Harn World uh, setting uh, back in uh, 1983 when it first uh, came out. Uh, when I was in high school, like a lot of people saw it in my you know neighborhood uh, game store, mm -hmm. thought it was really cool looking, had it, you know, bought it and snapped up other things as they kind of came out. But not everything, you know, I, you know, I was in high school, I couldn't afford to buy everything. Uh, so I had a couple of kingdoms that I that I um, that I purchased and ran a few uh, campaigns for friends uh, using the at first the 
AD&D rules, and then uh, we actually did one with the Warhammer Fantasy uh, rules um, in the late 80s. We, we used that. But I went away for many, many years and didn't do anything with role-playing uh, until um, actually the uh, early 2000s, around 2005 or so. Uh, something reminded me of Harn um, and why I uh, loved it so much from, you know, 20 years before. Uh, so I broke out my old books and read through them again. And I was like, man, this is really cool. I, I wonder if they're still around. You know, I, you know, it's, I had been completely out of role-playing for, uh, for 20 years. And so I looked up, uh, you know, online and it's like, oh, there's the harm forum and, you know, there's people still playing this and there's actually been some stuff, you know, a lot more stuff put out, um, you know, since then. So uh, I, you know, joined the harm forum and started engaging there and then uh, um, wrote a, what was going to be a, a Fanon article um, and uh, submitted it to a few people on the forum for some feedback um, before I did that. And uh, John Scamato, who managed the what is now the Harn Writers team, uh, John managed the, the group that was the creatives for Columbia Games at the time. And uh, he uh, asked if I'd be interested in having that, what was going to be Fanon, published by Columbia Games. So uh, I jumped at that and I joined the team. And then a few years later, John left and I kind of uh, took over managing uh, the group. So that's, you know, today I, I'm the kind of liaison between the group and Columbia Games. So I handle, uh, I handle the scheduling of what we do and when it comes out. I do the uh, copy editing, uh, the a lot of the substantive editing the um the layout uh, i write occasionally and i do a little bit of mapping so i do a lot of a lot of stuff uh but i'd say that the uh team management and production management are my um primary responsibilities excellent and uh carrie mold joining us for episode two i want to give yes. yourself a uh, glad to be back quick reminder on who you are yeah, so I'm Kerry Mould. I am one of the writers with the Harn Writers Group. I started writing for Harn in 2004, so this is my 20th year writing for, for uh, Harn. I started off, um, like many other people, in the 1980s as a, as a kid. I picked up uh, Cities of Harn was my first book. I didn't even know there was such thing as like the Harn decks or anything like that. I just had the Cities book, and I used it for my D&D campaigns. Um, and then I kind of put it away and forgot about it until 1999 when Harn Manor came out and I saw it in my local game store and I picked it up and I really liked it and it kind of reminded me of something. So I dug out Cities of Harn and I was like, I want more of this. So I went on a quest to buy everything ever made. And then I got all that and I still wanted more. So that's when I got into writing Fanon. Uh, my first Fanon article was Lady of Paladins. Uh, which came out in 2001, and that led to a, a number of Fanon articles, and then eventually uh, I did the uh, uh, the Lorrainian and Peonian sections of Kingdom of Kaldor in 2004. That was my first credit, and uh, after that I did the Lorrainian Temple in Tashal, and it just kind of went from there, and 
I, I have taken a few breaks along the way. I, I took kind of a five-year period where I, uh, I was still involved with Harn, but I wasn't writing. Uh, and then I kind of came back and, and uh, I've been writing even more now. Uh, and uh, my most recent release was, uh, was the Kingdom of Azimir, which uh, Mark was one of the co-writers on. And of course, Brent edited it and, and did a lot of rewriting and reorganization and made it flow better and made us all look good. Uh, with something like Tharda, which we're going to talk about today, all the writers in the group act as kind of peer reviewers. We look at what's been written uh, and we give comments and feedback and what we like and what we don't like and what works and what doesn't work. And so each, each uh, article goes through a pretty rigorous uh, review process and it makes for much better uh, product. It, uh, it really does come out better after it's been put through that, that uh, crucible of, uh, of other writers critiques. So um, so I'm happy to, to be here. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't get do any writing on the, the Tharda product myself, but, uh, I did have a chance to read through it and comment and, and uh, be part of the, the process of making it better. Yeah. And we, I, I really want to dig into some of the process that this game system goes through because it feels so much different from all the other publishers out there. Um, so we'll, we'll circle back to that. But let's talk about Tharda, which is over this shoulder here on the map, right there. Mark, why don't you fill us in? What is Tharda? What makes it different from everything else in Harn? How, how do you describe it to someone that you're just introducing to that kingdom? The best way to describe it is, um, you know, this is a shorthand and it's a lot more complicated than this, but Tharda is Rome in reverse, right? So Rome was uh, a republic that became an empire. Whereas uh, Tharda is the vestiges of an old empire that collapsed and just sort of regenerated itself as a republic. Um, essentially, due to um, essentially a religious war, um, the existing Qurani order collapsed and no one trusted each other enough to name a new emperor once things sort of shook out and, and settled down again. And so they entered into this sort of power sharing agreement um, through the, the body of the, uh, the Thardic Senate. Um, again, it's, it's more complicated than that. And, and the history of Tharda is uh, in my opinion, it's very, it's very rich. And there's a lot there that sort of describes why this part of Harn is the way it is. Um, and it's it's unique in Harn in that and, and in many ways unique amongst uh, amongst a lot of different RPG supplements, in that it is non-feudal. Um, you know, under feudalism, a kingdom like uh, Kaldor or Kanday, the king is the tenant in chief. By by law, the king owns all of the land, um, and the reason his vassals are called tenants is that they are just holding the land for him they are taking they are caretakers essentially and they may have a hereditary title and some hereditary rights to the use of that land but they do not own it and they serve essentially at the pleasure of the king tharda is very different in that it has a tradition of private land ownership so uh, one of the cool things about tharda is that unlike a feudal kingdom ranks and titles are not heritable but land and debts are 
So the way you get power in, in Tharda is by amassing land and through that land, wealth. Wealth is what brings influence and power within Thardic society, which is very different from, uh, from a feudal kingdom where it's essentially, you know, breeding and family connections and that sort of thing. That's not to say that family connections aren't important, but it's the, the emphasis is in a different place for Tharda. The other thing that I think is is really uh, interesting about Tharda is that uh, it has the only standing, uh, it's the only nation with a standing military uh, on Harn. So, except for the dwarves. Except for the dwarves, yes. <laughs> um, it's, you know, in the in the, the form of the Thardic legions, uh, who are, you know, the sort of, um, you know, whereas in, in a uh in a feudal kingdom you'd have the the knights and their men at arms and their peasant levy uh, in tharda you have the legion officers and the legion enlisted and one of the things that will will catch people out in in tharda if they're not expecting it is in a feudal kingdom all of the fortifications um are essentially the seats of power of the various nobility in tharda nobles can't have nobles quote unquote people with wealth and influence can't have fortifications there's no provision for a, a private crenellation license um, within tharda all of the fortifications are essentially owned and operated by the thardic legions so you know the the influential families through their um their posts as uh as legion marshals or uh, cohort commanders or whatever may have some you know control or sway um over a particular you know place but that's temporary they only have that influence they only have that power while they hold that office and those offices like all of the offices in the in the thardic bureaucracy are temporary so it's uh it's a really interesting uh and dynamic setting because the the levers of power are not as as stayed or as uh as fixed as they are um in a, a more hereditary society so when you think about that roman template and bringing it into a game world where a lot of it is based on 12th century england france that sort of thing how deep does that go is it is it more of just like we're changing the manorial system we're taking a senate does it go further than that like how how does that impact like the daily life when you are playing a character that's that would normally be at that manner yeah so i, I hesitate to um to really ascribe to uh too much of the roman template mm -hmm. uh, one of the things i i always try to remind people is tharda is not rome it has many of the same features. We use it as a shorthand sometimes to get an idea across that, oh, there's a Senate, uh, there are legions, et cetera. But, but in reality, it's more, uh, more complicated than that. It really is sort of more, um, more tied to the setting. Um, what we sort of do for a lot of things is go back to first principles. So in Tharda, the first principle is private land ownership. So once we've we've said, okay, private land ownership is a thing, now we have to work forward through that and say, what are the ramifications of this thing? Now, 
your question of of how does that affect the um the the person on on the manor um what's cool about tharda is that because it doesn't have this sort of you know surf um surf identity um for for common people there's a lot more social mobility in tharda than there than there is in in a uh, a feudal kingdom you know the the rights and uh and responsibilities of any individual citizen largely depends on their economic status not upon their their birth status and so if you are a gm running a game in harn tharda is a great place to start because you don't have to you don't have to come up with ways to say oh well your character was born a serf but now you're an adventurer and you're you know how did you get that way what allows you to travel what allows you to carry weapons etc cetera, etc cetera. in tharda um there are a lot more ways that you can say oh you know your character is a legion veteran and as such you have the capability to carry weapons around because you're a reservist um so there's a lot of um a lot of little uh built-in hooks that allow for um you know the the, the kind of heroic pcs that we all want to play when we're when we're playing make-believe right um and and that's one of the things that i think that that really sort of sets tharda apart even within harn as a a place that's great for um for creating a party of of adventurers just one thing that i would add in that really has struck me when i've played in tharda is Tharda is cosmopolitan in the sense that um, you have all the religions there. So literally, you have a Lorrainian temple down the street from an Agrican temple. You have open worship of Morgath. You have the Vaeans, but you also have Peonians and Save Kanor and, you know, I'm sure Siemists somewhere and Ilvirans. Um, so it's... it's uh, it is really a crossroads, both figuratively and, uh, you know, literally, because it is the center of, of sort of the Harnic economies. You know, you have the, the salt route coming in from the east, and you have uh, the trade coming from Retha and, and Kande, and they're all kind of mixing and mingling together in Tharda. And the Tharn um, River, don't forget the Tharn River. And the Tharn River is a, like is an amazing uh, economic engine, right? The 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 boats are going up and down the Tharn River all the time, so it is really a you know a great opportunity. And because it's in the center, you can have uh, you know a, a person from Caldor coming in as a as a merchant or part of a caravan, meeting up with someone from Retham, and you can have all those interactions because it is it is a crossroads it is a uh, a mixing uh, melting pot and different things are allowed right you know this is this is one of those things like uh, mark said is that because it is not a monarchy people can rise up you know they can move up there's a lot more uh, potential still money makes the world go round right so the rich families keep themselves on top but an up and comer can work his way right up and and weasel his way up into this to the senate uh, you know over a course of a generation or two so it is fun in that way because it offers that that sort of mix that you don't see elsewhere in in uh, art another mechanism that 
uh, the Thardic Republic has for uh, GMs and for, for players to, to leverage as well is the, the, the whole concept of the patron-client relationships. Yes. So mm-hmm. unlike in uh, a feudal kingdom where if you're a serf, you've got you know your manor lord over you, and sure, he has some legal responsibilities to you, but it's a um, it that relationship you can't just like up and leave. That that manor lord effectively owns you, and getting you know buying your way out or being able to move elsewhere or move up in the world is extremely limited. Your chances are very limited. But in the Thardic Republic, there's uh, this huge element of who you know and who owes you favors and who you owe favors to is extremely crucial to how you operate on a daily basis. That, you know, sure, you may have a patron who is, you know, a wealthy landowner and you owe him certain things and therefore he can call on you uh, as needed. But he can, you know, you can have your patron do things for you to introduce you to other people and to, you know, there's a lot, you can have more than one patron, you can have many, you know, and so there's a lot of that, that uh, a good GM can use that, again, as a mechanism for uh, controlling or guiding uh, the game, because it's, you know, oh, you're your patron calls on you to, you know, to do this for him. And, you know, it's kind of the, he's going to make you an offer you can't refuse, you know, it's a you, so there's an awful lot of that. And, you know, I know Mark, you know, you've run campaigns there. And I know that you've talked about that, how uh, incredibly useful that is in situations, you know, that are prime for adventure. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, to, uh, leverage a, a video game terminology they're a built-in quest giver right and and it's one that that has underpinnings within how the society is written it doesn't feel um like forced or or artificial it's something that's just it's how the society works um and one of the really cool things about the patron client relationship is that um a, a, the vast bulk of of thardic legal code is in ascribing value to um like monetary value to the favors and responsibilities and obligations that are owed between people and so if you want to change patronage or you want to you know essentially buy off your obligation to a patron you can do that or you can say hey you know wealthy powerful person a is no longer giving me what i want so I'm going to go to wealthy, powerful person B and have them essentially buy my clienty off of my old patron, and now I have a different employer. And similarly, you know, if if wealthy and powerful person A sees a, a a client of wealthy and powerful person B, he can make an offer to buy that client. And so, you know, the idea that you have not just you know a single quest giver. Um, but potentially multiple or that that can change over time from a narrative standpoint, from, you know, a GM running a game standpoint, 
it just builds in so much flexibility for what you can do and the kind of stories you can tell and the sort of narrative arcs you can put the players on. And and there are a number of tensions in the region. Absolutely. Yeah. So we ha- we haven't really talked about the greater external political situation, but they have recently been at war with two yeah. neighboring kingdoms. Well, and, yes. And I think that's that's one of the really cool things in terms of as a GM setting your game, uh, you know, where you set your game in Karn. And I know that you're planning to have a a series of these uh, videos about why start in Kaldor and why start in Kanday and why, you know, that kind of thing. Um, (laughs) One really cool thing about Tharda is because, because it is a part of that triple there of uh, the evil dark kingdom of Retham to the west and the the goody goody kingdom of Kanday to the south and then you've got Tharda right there that shares borders with both and it has had conflicts with both and those have had conflicts with each other and so there's this super tense section of of Harn that um is just ripe for for all sorts of of role playing opportunities, and there are factions in the Republic that want to see the two neighbors fight each other. There's factions that want to side with one against the other, or side with the other against the one. You know, so there's all sorts of really interesting things you can kind of get yourself into as a GM. It's like yeah, I don't like those guys. So, you know, what can I do to, you know, how do I orchestrate things so the players, you know, go in this certain direction and stuff. And so there's a lot of really interesting things there where you started with this is that, yeah, just a few years ago, uh, the Thardic Republic uh, first lost a bunch of land to Kanday, but then took back land from Kanday. Um, and so there's parts of the Republic that were less than a generation ago, they were Kanday. So those people were, you know, Kandayan serfs, basically. Well, they're still working on the land. It's just they're no longer working for, you know, a feudal overlord. Some new guy moved into the the manor house who's now you know, and so it's kind of this, well, wait, we used to do things this way, but now I'm doing this and, oh, wait a minute, I'm not tied to the land anymore. I can actually improve my lot in life. And so there's kind of a culture change going on in part of the Republic, and it kind of lends itself to some interesting opportunities for role-playing around that uh, clashes of tradition and clashes of new ideas um, between what was feudal Kanday and is now uh, the Republic. And so there's just a lot of um, lot of opportunities uh, around that. Yeah. The, the other um, main conflict uh, with external conflict is with the Kingdom of Retham. Um, you know, several, several years uh, before the current timeline, which is, you know, uh, in Harm Materials is always um, the year 720 by Tuzan Reckoning. Um, A, a force of Agrican knights from Retham crossed the Gomison River and, uh, and took Themison Keep, which was a, which was a Legion fortification. 
that happened under the previous king of Rethem. The new king of Rethem has exercised very, very little control over this Agrican order. And since that time, that Agrican order has undergone a schism. And so now the representatives of that Agrican order in Tharda are no longer in control. The new representatives in Rethem have not sworn fealty to the king of Rethem. And so the status of the ownership of this of the lands around this this fortification are in flux and there are there are forces in both kingdoms who are trying to get resolution to the situation preferably without sparking another all-out war there's a lot of tension both politically but also um within the within the religious the associated religious orders so that's another uh another region or another you know part of the uh of of tharda that is just fantastic uh like rife with role-playing opportunities because there is so much trouble that you can get into about that and trust me my players have there's a lot of like neat little things when you're when you're playing with uh tharda uh one of my favorites is the fact that the king of kande so one of the the major rivals of tharda um, he has a summer home, like just off, like uh, one of the major uh, legion fortifications, like literally down the road from the, the big legion fortification at Mulderin. The king hangs out and and goes hunting and spends his summers there, you know, without a care in the world. And he's he's like a day's march or a couple days march from a major legion fortification. Like the 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 options for chaos and. And, you know, somebody kidnaps the king or one of the, the little hooks in, in the Ibanost uh, article is that the, the local barbarians regularly kidnap uh, Thardic legionnaires, sell them to the constable of Ibanost, who kindly ransoms them back to Tharda on a regular basis as a form of revenue. So, you know, there's, there's lots of and, fun little and- hooks. And building on that, one of the key political players, um, Marshal Cronus Ellernan, was uh, who who was very uh, very influential and was the general in charge of of Thardic forces when they took the, took back land from uh, from Candae. When he was a young officer, he was one of those who was captured, marched naked into Ebonost, and ransomed back. And that is one of the reasons he detests the kingdom of Candae. And yes, there's more. So to the west, we talked about you've got Retham and then you've got Kanday. But what about to the east? Well, to the east is just vast, it's just vast wilderness until you get way over to the other side of, of Harn to, to Kaldor. But all that wilderness, it's not uninhabited. It's very much inhabited by people who do not like you. <laughs> you know, it's there's all sorts of um uh tribal peoples that live in that part of, of Harn. So, you know, over your over your right shoulder there where you've got Lake Benath and you've got Tharda, well, there's that whole area right under the Ooh, lake, yep. under the lake there, that is kind of a, um, well, you could call it a choke point because you have to go through there. Um, that's all tribal lands. And I, so I disagree. Tri- that's, that's all claimed by the Tharda Republic. Those are Republic lands, sir. It's all claimed. 
exactly. It's claimed by the Republic, but they don't control it. And that's a cool thing here is that, you know, the legions occasionally will go out and travel the road or they'll, they have in the past tried to set up forts, but they've just been slaughtered over and over again. And so, you know, there's, you've got another flashpoint as a GM, if you don't want to have, um, if you don't want to focus on conflict with Ratham or conflict with Kanday or conflict within the cities, you know, between the different senatorial factions and stuff, you've got all this area that you can have the legions against the barbarian type action. You know, you've got uh, some cannibalistic uh, tribal people down to the southeast and you've got the very fierce warlike uh, uh, Tolwyn um, uh, tribal people of, of the Apple region. And there's all sorts of different things. There's nothing around Tharda is peaceful. It's all right on the edge of conflict. And you as GM, I mean, we try to do that everywhere with Horn. Everything is kind of like on the cusp of action, on the cusp of catastrophe, um, that you as GM decide which levers you're going to pull. Where are you going to pull the straw that's going to break the camel's back on this or on that or on two things at once? You know, perhaps you get a strong tribal leader that manages to um, to to get all the tribes together and uh, attack can uh, attack Tharda from the east. At the same time, you've got people from you know the Rethan forces from the west. You've got Kanday from the from the southwest. So you as GM, if you really want to make things really interesting for your players, you have all these different levers you can pull to throw danger at them or throw opportunity at them. Yeah. Both Sharan and uh, Karnan both have arenas and uh, the they have beast hunters who go out into the wilderness and bring weird and exotic beasts in and they stage them in gladiatorial fights in the, uh, in the arenas. So if you wanna play gladiators or you want to have beast hunters to go out in the, in the wilderness, there is a ready market that will pay you very, very good money uh, for some serious danger and serious personal risk of injury. But uh, there is money to be made and there is, is, uh, is influence to be bought if you can uh, do well in the, in the arenas. So there's a whole, if you want to play gladiators, that's another uh, option that, uh, that Tharda gives to you. Yeah, a little bread and circus. Mark, I think you wanted to uh, throw something in there? Yeah, I, I just wanted to throw in that uh, we haven't really talked much about the um, the internal conflicts uh, within Tharda, specifically within the Thardic Senate. There are, you know, anytime you have 68 people of wealth and influence trying to agree on anything, it's, it's going to uh, cause problems um, and there are going to be splinters and factions and, and power blocks are going to shift and change. But there are sort of five established factions within the Senate. Um, that have very different ideas about, you know, how the Senate's uh, funds should be allocated, how policies should be made, who should be in charge of various things. So, you know, you have the expansionists who are very, you know, pro-conquest, although they have different different ideas about how that should be done. 
either you know they want to pacify the barbarians in Athul, or they want to settle the lands around Lake Banath aggressively, or they want to just conquer Retham because why not? Um, versus consolidationists who are like, hey, let's let's make sure everything is working well in the Republic for citizens of the Republic before we do anything crazy. Um, then you have the imperialists who want to return to a more imperial style of rule, not necessarily doing away with the Senate, but um, you know, elevating a member of the Senate to a more um, influential or autocratic role. Similarly, the monarchists, the imperialists and the monarchists have different ideas about how that government should be structured. Um, and then, of course, there are the reformists who, you know, look at the graft and corruption and, and whatever in the, the Thardic Senate and say, this needs to be fixed, uh, but nobody likes them. So um, <laughs> one of the things that I should point out is that within the Thardic bureaucracy, most of the positions are unpaid. Um, so whereas in a, in a feudal kingdom, you may have a sinecure that comes with some stipend, or, you know, if you're a, a tenant in chief, you, you get the whole, the, the, the revenue of those holdings. If you're a marshal or a magistrate of a province of Tharda, you don't get a salary. So what you can make out of that, out of that job is what you can wring out of it. Um, by accepting, you know, uh, essentially, essentially bribes, right? Um, what's cool about the the Thardic government is that it's essentially a pay to play kind of kind of thing. You know, your your players may need something from some official, and you know he just leaves them in the in the antechamber and lets them stew, and they've been waiting for like days or weeks or whatever, and finally one of them slips 20 silver pieces to uh to his his secretary and the case is heard immediately and and that kind of a thing that kind of difference in in how the government works um in how money explicitly lubricates the wheels of government and society i think is a really a really cool thing and if you're a GM who uh, ends up with players who have just amassed way too much money, <laughs> it's a great way to part them from it. That's always a, a challenge, no matter what the game is, right? So mm -hmm. I've got two questions for you before we move on to, to process. Okay. One, Harn is always accused of being extremely low fantasy. Uh, that is definitely not true. There's a lot of high fantasy stuff, but you do have to dig a little bit for it, you know? Uh, looking in the books, what in is there an example of something that's explicitly high fantasy? The uh, arenas aside, there with some of the uh, Ilvirian beasts and different creatures that comes to mind when you think about that aspect of the game world. Go through the various settlement articles, and you will find things that pop out at you uh, as as more sort of high fantasy elements. Uh, there are ancient standing stones and weird stuff happens around them and nobody knows who built them or why they're there. There's a place in Kam province where once a generation, the, uh, the settlement holds a lottery and the person who loses is chained to a rock out in the wilderness. And that person is never seen again. What, what, what's going on there? Um, you know, you have while it's not one of the common religions 
um, Ilvirianism is very much a thing in Tharda, and the uh, people of the Ilvirian faith do make pilgrimage to Araka Kalai. And Araka Kalai is arguably, if you want to, if you want to go the high fantasy route, it is where the god Ilvir lives. So, in the Harnik setting, you have, you know, essentially the seat of Godhead. You can either play that up or down, however you want, um, but the the hooks are there for you to use them if you want. Um, some of the religious uh, religious conflicts. Uh, part of the uh, part of the schism between the the two orders that are associated with the conflict between Rethem and Tharda, uh, one of the the sort of key sticking points between those two orders is the theft of a religious manuscript that you know is essentially a treatise on demonology. Is that a is that a spellbook for summoning? Is that you know there's a lot of stuff in there that that it's little nuggets. But you can use it to um, to dial up or down the various level of fantasy that you want to have in your campaign. Yeah, sign me up. Okay. One last thing on that topic, or on this general topic of like the setting and things like that. This has been around for quite a while. You guys have done a whole bunch of revisions. You've written some new articles. You've expanded articles. What is in here for the folks that have purchased this? 20 30 years ago like if, is there something specific that stands out to you and as like yeah. oh this is going to wow some folks well i don't i don't know if there's like any one thing that would wow folks i think that it's more a uh just it's a very broad expansion that the yeah we literally the, doubled the page count yeah the, the back if, if you bought this back in 1987 um uh, or bought Cities of Harn, which had uh, Coronan and Shiran in it. Uh, each of those were, you know, a handful of pages. And the Thardic Republic module was 30-ish pages. 32. The There was very, very little information in the Republic module from 1980s about religion. There was you know, a uh, part of a page, you know, a few paragraphs, um, very little detail, just very broad and some like something's completely overlooked. Well, in the new one, religion gets what, three whole pages, four whole pages. I don't remember what we ended up with, but, but it's, we go a lot more detail into, well, just how does this, you know, church operate in the Republic? What does make it set? What does set it apart? Um, we added a whole a whole section about uh, the prevalence of polytheism of people who openly worship more than one deity, because that's not uncommon elsewhere on Harn, but it's kind of overlooked. It's not as prevalent as it is in the Republic. And so we really kind of fleshed out um, the economic picture. We fleshed out the religion picture, but also each of the major settlements in the old Republic module got a couple inches of text. Yeah. You know, it was just a paragraph, a, usually. a paragraph describing not just, and, and it mostly just talked about who the marshal is and who the magistrate is, and maybe gave you a couple little facts about the town 
very little about the district itself or the province. And so a whole big part of what we did for this uh, 2021 expansion was we gave each of the districts an entire page that it's not just one paragraph, it's eight paragraphs or whatever it would, you know, the, with, with an illustration about something in the, in the district, whether it is some notable person or it's a scene or something. Uh, but just across the board, like I would say about the only thing that didn't really change was the history. You know, we, we left history as it was, we added a, a, quite a bit to uh, the current situation, gave a little more, uh, you know, gave more information about the conflicts brewing, gave a lot of new section, there's a new section about the movers and shakers in the Senate. That wasn't all really there. We had kind of explained the client-patron relationship to a degree that didn't exist before. We really got into what sets Thardic society apart. That if you go back between you know the late 80s and when we put this out, if you talk to people, very few people used the Thardic Republic in you know relative to like pretty much everywhere else on Harn. And Time and time again, you know, we would hear, yeah, I just don't know what to make of it. I don't know how to work it. You know, I don't know. It's different enough, but I don't have enough information to make that work. Now, people like Mark, who did take that information and did kind of think through, well, what would this mean? How would I do this? But a lot of people just never did. And so it was just kind of a, yeah, it's there, but I don't like to go there because I don't quite understand how to use it. It was very similar to what uh, a problem Carrie looked to solve with Azadmir yeah. was <laughs> you had Azadmir up in the mountains. We knew, you know, there's it's dwarves. We know a little bit about it, but how does that society work? How do people get entry to Azadmir? How do you get accepted? Very similar problem that we solved with, that we were looking to solve with the Republic was the same thing as how do I as a GM use this place. Sure, I had some of this text before, but it didn't really give me enough meat to dig my teeth into to really make it come alive for my players. It was just kind of a, well, it's just like the other kingdoms, but there's a Senate and uh, and gladiators. You know, it was just kind of a, a wishy-washy and not really unique. And so that was really our uh, our our goal with this newer version was let's make this place shine. Let's really highlight what makes it different. Why should someone buy it? Because it's very different from everywhere else. And here's why. Here's how. Here's what you do with it. Yeah. To to sort of uh, build on that, um, you know, I I think some of the sections that are are most important are the ones that give a sense of place. Um, so following the, the template of some of the other, other redone versions of the various kingdom modules, there's a section on art and architecture and fashion and food and music and, you know, uh, traditions and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, add in the, the whole section on the patron client relationship and how, how, you know, families and clans within Tharda kind of operate that goes a long way to 
really selling people on how things work. You know, I mean, like, I think probably the part of that that I'm proudest of is the uh, the um, the bit on furniture with the tibet. So, like, one of the one of the things that is is sort of unique to Tharda is one of the most prized pieces of furniture that a lot of people have is a little three-legged camp stool that they use because at some point in Tharda, you're going to be standing in line. So you might as well be comfortable when you do it, right? So it's little things like that that really sell the spirit of the place. And then uh, the other thing that I want to sort of build on that, that Brent mentioned is that, you know, when we when we expanded the the settlement pages, you know, previously, as you mentioned, it's very, very little text on on most of them. Those all have a full page now. And as we always do with those kind of things, those entries are just oozing with plot hooks. There is so much stuff going on, so many adventure ideas that are on those pages that any game master who who learns how to how to read harm materials with an eye towards spotting oh this is this is the conflict and this is what i can build an adventure around those pages are gold they've got so much stuff in them um for that alone i think the uh the expanded version is well well worth it that's something that's really stuck out to me is like words are not wasted in these books so when you're trying to convey pretty complex topics or really convey a sense of of place but at the same time you're saying okay we need to make this into a, a hook like how are you going about how are you balancing that because it seems fairly difficult is, is this all part of the peer review or i think one of the things is that uh as you work even hard and as you uh you know have uh, write various articles you kind of get an eye for hmm what is there already that can be used to build a hook or what is there already suggest that you could add in you know is there a missing brother or uh you know an insipid tax revolt just waiting to happen you know these are sort of things that you can identify and then weave them in and as brent mentioned we try and put everything just on the edge right you know uh, someone's brother was just hung and he's he's getting his friends together to to sort out the the uh, the local magistrate for hanging his brother right you know but it hasn't happened yet so there your players are in the midst and uh you know everything in harn starts on one newziel uh 720 newziel is the new new moon the, the the month of January is essentially it's actually I think it's the month of April uh, equivalent and everything is kind of hooked on that moment and what spills over on the other side is entirely up to you and your players and one of the fun parts to do is to actually have some of those things happening in other places like once your players start off in whatever location you're in have some of the other things happening in the other locations so that when they show up in Coronan, you know, maybe there's a riot going on, you know, when they arrive, like, hey, what's all the noise and everything? It turns out that the Lorrainians and the Agricans are having a full-blown riot in the middle of the square and the 
you know, the legionnaires are trying to separate the religious fanatics and, and there are people on the side betting on who's going to win. And, you know, it, it makes the place feel alive and that you're participating in it. It's not just sitting there static waiting for you to show up. That's, that's one of the, the tricky things about being a GM in this system is everything is in motion and it's paused right at the beginning of when your campaign, you know, takes off, you know, they're not waiting on you to show up and trigger something. It's just happening. And being able to pick that up and run with it is a challenge for, for a new GM. Um, especially when there's so so many things. I would, I would would point out that it, it's, um, you know, it's sort of teetering at a point, but it doesn't have to move right away. Right. Mm. I mean, the Calderic succession crisis, right. It's all predicated on the death of King Miganath. When does that could, could happen tomorrow. It could happen a decade from now. Right. Um, And it's the same with pretty much anything that's going on in any of the settlements. There could be some, you know, just about to happen conflict that's written as of 720, you know, uh, first New Zealand 720. But if your players don't get there until first New Zealand 722, there's nothing to say that that conflict can't be at that exact same point because your players don't know the difference, right? Mm. You have all of that inspiration and material to use as inspiration but you don't have to have everything moving at once. You shouldn't feel that you as the GM need to, um, you know, progress all of the plot lines in the entire world in the background, just in case your players go there, leave that stuff as it is until your players go there and, and use it um, as, as you see fit. Obviously, if you have something happening that changes everything, you know, a revolution, a war, whatever, that may put a spin on um, on the conflict that's going on in a different place. But realistically, you know, they say all politics are local. If a conflict mm-hmm. is going on in a place, if there's a war going on somewhere else, chances are that conflict is still going on in that place. You know, those brothers or cousins still hate each other. Um, you know, that uh, that official is still... Uh, you know, corrupt and and trying to wring every every penny he can out of his uh, out of his constituents, et cetera, et cetera. You can use all of that stuff, even against the back backdrop of of bigger, wider events. So, yeah, I, I would encourage GMs who are using Harn to play with the timeline as much as they want to use that inspiration and just drop it in as it's needed. Or, you know, when they need an adventure hook or when they need an idea for something to happen or when the players go to a new place for the first time, that's when that stuff becomes, I think, most useful. And one of the tricks that one one of uh, a couple of people have pointed out to me is you don't have to start in 720. If you want to know what's happening, you can start in 715 and you have five years of history kind of already mapped out for you. So that you can save yourself all that you the 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 game has provided you the next five years, so you can play your characters along through an existing five year timeline, and then when they get to be the big and strong important heroes, that's when seven twenty happens, and that's when Rethem invades Tharda. You know that could mm-hmm. be the kickoff. You know, so you can you can play with that around and and use that in any way that you feel fit. So if if you want to start 
completely 100% fresh, then start in 720 and move forward and the world's your oyster. Or you can back it up a little bit and in, and use some of those resources that have already been created for you. Yeah. Yeah. Because Yeah, that's a great idea. Off, you started off talking, you know, an hour ago about the the conflicts and so you know that it we know that as of 720 that in the uh the five-year war that certain things happened or we know that in the qsim war certain things happened when the, the republic took back those lands from uh from kande but like that out you know if that's an area that interests you that okay when uh, when you start your campaign those are still Kande lands and then something happens that incites this that then that happens and so you can kind of in your world in your version of barn maybe the republic doesn't win those lands back maybe Kande does hold lands up to the the Tharg river right across from from Coronan and so you've got uh, you know the you've got a lot of things you can do there um if you step back and play out some of those really interesting parts of history i mean sure yeah. it you know kind of destroys everything else that's out there for you but um that you know it'll, be, it'll very much be yours at that point exactly um i've i've one maybe two last questions so one is is you've done a number of these books a number of these revisions how has have you felt like there's been an evolution within your process and in, in your very brain? much yes the to the point where it's almost come full circle because the very first so all these kingdoms were published in the night in the mid to late 80s back in around i think 2004 is what uh what carrie said that uh, Columbia Games did put out an expanded or a, rev a revised uh, Kingdom of Kanday and Kingdom of Kaldor. And they had some new information. They definitely were expanded. They had a lot more art than, than what was in the original. Um, but then there was kind of a gap of some years between those and then the ones that were following that, the ones that, you know, the with Meldorin and Orbal and Retham to the point where, and then Chibissa and, and Azadmir. And as we, this group here, the, the current team, I don't think, other than like Carrie said, he uh, contributed a few parts of Kaldor. Um, nobody who was involved with Kanday and Kaldor is still around um, mm. of the 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 the, uh, the the freelance team, the writing team. Um, so when we Ball. did, Orball was where I where I first uh, started working on Kingdom. So, were, so we did Meldrin. I think Meld. I'm trying to remember the order of these. Um, it was it was Kanday and Kaldor, mm -hmm. Retham, Orball, Meldrin. Uh, Shibisa and then Tharazidmir. And that, yeah, and then Azidmir after that. But yeah, that was so when we did, yeah, you're right, Retham was the third one because Retham, if you look at Kaldor and Kande and then you look at Retham, there's a big difference 
in level of detail. There's a big difference in the expansion because it was very much a, you know, Carrie was uh, one of the primaries. In fact, I think you were the primary on uh, most of Retham, um, but there's a lot more to it. And every time we did one, we've learned, it's like, okay, so when we did Meldrin or when we did Orbal, it's like, well, what did we, what did we like about how we did Retham? What didn't we like about how we did Retham? Let's, you know, and so they're, I'd like to say they've, they've been getting better and better and stuff, but now that Columbia Games has started the hardback campaign uh, that through Kickstarter, that um, as we've been doing those, you know, all these kingdoms have been done, but now the one, uh, the, there's going to be a, a, the hardback book upcoming for Candae, but we're actually circling back to Candae mm -hmm. as it was the first one that was expanded and it was the least revised, the least expanded. So for the upcoming Candae book, we're giving Candae the treatment that all these other ones have had over the last 10 years that we're greatly expanding Candae. So definitely you know, the, the 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 hardback book of Tharda um, has really nothing different from what was in the previous edition of Tharda because that one just came out two years ago. So we, there, we didn't have to really do much to it. It was more just a, a packaging into the book with uh, Shiran and, and Coronan. But Candae is different because it was the last really got a lot of attention uh, in, you know, almost two decades ago. So a lot of work has gone into the Candae book. And I'm sure that when we get to the Candae book uh, Kickstarter campaign and, you know, we do a video about that, I can go into a lot more detail about what's coming. But just to answer that question of yours is, yeah, we have learned as we've been doing more and more of these um, expansions. I, I would just say that, that um they're a lot more uh, immersive now, I would say, is it gives a, you a lot more information about how does a person live, uh, what sort of clothes do they wear, what sort of food do they eat, and it, now they feel like very different cultures. It's not just here's four different medieval kingdoms and, you know, they're all pretty much interchangeable. They now, you know, feel alive and, and feel very different. And that was, you know, one of the things I was very proud of when we did Azadmir is to, to bring the dwarves to life and to give them a, an interesting culture that never existed before. I mean, uh, Azadmir was a very thin kingdom module. So we gave them a lot of, uh, brought their sort of civilization to life. And you can see that they're actually living a life and things are going on just because the PCs are around the corner doesn't mean that their kingdom stops. Yeah. And and I like to think we did the same for all the other kingdoms as well. Yeah, when we were doing a, a lot of the discussions for uh, for how to expand the the Azimir, uh kingdom module, I, I remember you know basically pounding my fist on the table and saying I, I don't care as long as dwarves aren't just short hairy humans who live underground. You know it yep. it needs to be something different. They have to have a distinct culture. They have to have you know a different 
worldview, different outlook, different way of doing things. Um, and I think that as part of the process, you know, it, it being very much a collaborative process, um, I'm really, really happy with the result of that. And I think that it kind of goes to a question you asked before about, you know, that how do we, how do we pack so many hooks in? What is, how does that, and really it does kind of tie into the whole process and I don't want to, you know, that's a whole can of worms to get into is what our process is. But, you know, we, we've touched on, uh, you know, on a, a bits of this that, you know, this review process that we have as a team and all that it really, you know, th there's a lot of really smart, experienced people on this team that when you write your draft, when you post your draft for the team to review, it, I don't want to say it, it can be brutal. It can be brutal. But it can be brutal. <laughs> that I, I'm laughing because because I'm going through that right now right with Karaz yeah. part two is yeah. is uh is it it's got a bit of a lambasting and and but the the cool part is that the ideas that have come from the other writers have already sent it in a new and more interesting direction and yeah. and will give it more more adventure potential and more, uh, make it more interesting and make it a place that your characters will remember and fondly discuss. Oh, do you remember when we did this and when we went to this place and stuff like that? It gives that sense of uh, excitement to the, yeah. to the process, but that comes from really putting it through the grinder. Yeah, that's the thing that when, 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 the, when a first draft is posted and you're just inviting people to poke holes in all of your very carefully crafted ideas and they do they will oh. find the things that and, you know they'll find the nooks and crannies that the things you tried to paper over like don't pay any attention to this i haven't really thought that through people will find it and people will poke at it and it's it can be painful it can be frustrating you might want to just throw your hands up and you know but at the end of this process, the that what I like to think that what we put out is improved by this process. And because we have so many, you know, the people are smart and experienced. Everybody is, I don't want to say wordy, but there are so many ideas and so many things that they try to pack into an article that not only is the review process pretty brutal in terms of people really poking at your ideas and helping you craft new ones, then the editing process is just as bad because, you know, your, your full paragraph about something may get pared down to, you know, four sentences, you know, that it's trying to cram as many ideas because like you pointed out, it's all about those hooks. We want, you know, just hook after hook after hook. So it's not, well, give me two whole paragraphs explaining an idea it's distill that idea distill that hook down to its bare minimum give the you know give the gm give the reader enough but you don't have to you know just lard it over with all sorts of extraneous detail and all that it's just like leave it you know just leave something to them but just give them four ideas instead of one really fleshed out idea 
And so it's kind of, that is where our process goes is how can I really cut this down to fit in more cool stuff as mm -hmm. opposed to just really going overboard with this one or two things. Yeah, and and Brent hasn't even brought up the other part of the uh, the review and edit process, which is when you come up with an idea and you write it all up and you're feeling all clever about how awesome it is, and mm -hmm. you you know post your initial draft of it, and you know five minutes later somebody's like, oh yeah, there's a canon clash with that in this other publication over here. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's that's a big part of this is that there is so much published over the last forty years that there's conflicts there's conflicts in published information and so when we're writing something new and that is discovered where it's a not only did what you just draft conflict with something that's been published we found two instances that don't agree with each other that have been out there for 30 something years so it's like oh what do we do about that is there a way of kind of cleverly reconciling those or is one of them just flat out wrong and we have to go back and fix that uh at some other point but that kind of stuff does happen but it really kind of you know we we try to be very careful about not counteracting something that robin crosby and ed king and tom dalglish that these original writers that put a lot of the you know the the things out 30, 40 years ago, sometimes they disagreed with each other between the articles. We'll find that. We'll try to, you know, correct that in the current stuff, but we're not going to change it, you know, in terms of, you know, we, we don't want to make substantive changes to canon facts. We may find things that simply don't work or that were not really thought through, and we may massage those to make them make more sense. Um, but we really try to stick with what's out there because we know that as soon as we put something out, somebody out there is going to say, oh, but actually that's not what it says over here from 1988's version. And so we don't want to, uh, we don't want to have to deal with that. The, the nitpicking of it's like, because they're right. It's like, well, that was the fact that was established we try to stick as close to those established facts as we possibly can um, unless we think that there is a very good reason to change something and and i will say you know as somebody who is is predominantly a writer i don't do any of the any of the mapping work um most of my contribution is in um writing and and you know copy and copy and content edit um for me the the practice of of writing in an environment where you do have so many sort of built-in constraints i it's challenging yes but i i find it also immensely rewarding because one of the one of the challenges in writing for a setting like harn is okay you have x y and z facts that are canon they're facts they're in existing publications but a lot of times there's there's not necessarily and especially if you're doing like an expansion or something there's not necessarily a reason why and i think one of the really rewarding challenges in writing for harn as a setting is in coming up with the why what is the situation you know that has to be 
going on in a in a particular place such that facts x y and z logically flow from those you know I, I mentioned you know going back to first principles this is very much that and all of the writing that we do when we do peel things back to first principles and try to say how do we make these various disparate canon facts mesh together in a way that makes sense in a way that is useful to game masters that doesn't break verisimilitude and that offers opportunities for players to do cool stuff i think that is the challenge and if you can make it work in my opinion it's one of the most rewarding parts of of the setting itself well so far it seems that you're making it work so i'm very excited for this one um so that is republic of tharda on kickstarter now uh, i will link that in the description and uh, on the podcast uh, we then have i'm looking at the release schedule here kingdom of kanday kingdom of shibasa and kingdom of avail and that is it. There's a light at the end of this tunnel. And oh, so, no, no, not yet. Oh, oh no, yet. we've got we got more. There's more to oh, come. Oh no! <laughs> and that's well, in in addition to Harnquest. Yes, yeah. That okay. the we kind of right. There's the quarterly Harnquest releases. So it's uh, Columbia Games subscription pack. You know, subscription product that's uh, you know 32 pages or so every quarter. Um, and that can be uh, a settlement. It can be a religious order. It can be any number. You know, uh, uh, we've been doing uh, guilds uh, lately, so it's just a mix of whatever we're working on. Um, but yeah, then there's the, the the Kickstarter, the hardback books, and you know, so yeah, even after the uh, the king, the Harnet Kingdoms are done, there's Ivinia. There's mm. there's uh, you know, people have said, well, why don't you take all of those, uh, the, the bestiary articles, we want a hardback of the beasts, we want a hardback of uh, guilds, we want, well, we got a lot of work to do to put it, put all those together. And we've got, you know, so there's any number of packages, uh, or, you know, that, that could be put together and sold in hardback form. Um, our team doesn't, focus so much on how Columbia Games sells its products, mm -hmm. we're preparing the products for them to sell. So if Grant uh, did say, uh, you know, I, I want to put out a hardback version of the bestiary, well, Richard Lushek, who is our artist, uh, he would have to go through and like, okay, I want to change some of the black and white art from the older ones. I want to make some new color versions of that. And, you know, I would do the assembly of all the pieces into the book. We might have to, if there was anything that needed new text, if we wanted to expand on something, I'd get a volunteer from the team to, to do that. But for the book products, the Kickstarter books, uh, the team doesn't have that much of an involvement. Right. But uh, I mean, I think there are some some uh, exciting upcoming projects that we're working on from the Harnquest end of things um, that I'm really excited to see come out. I'm also excited to see the uh, the Kingdom of Avail uh, be expanded and re-released. Well, that's going to be and Carrie's one of the leads on on that, and I won't speak to it too much. But one really interesting thing about what. Columbia Games is going to do with Avail is that 
unlike all these other kingdom modules where all the pieces have been previously published. Uh, so there was in the hardback book, there was nothing, nothing big new for it, you know, Azadmir or nothing really big new in Thardic Republic. Candae is going to have some new expansion material, like I was talking about. Avail, when that hardback book is published, most of what's going to be in that book will be new. Because that's very exciting. Avail has so little written about it that exists now that we, and so there's a lot of new material that's in development. And so we had asked Grant about, hey, do you plan to release these piecemeal as part of Harnquest? So the new Avail Kingdom, then uh, a new Elshevel and a new Ulfshafen and a new this, that, or whatever. Are you going to release the parts as part of Harnquest? Or you want to just save them all and release them first as the hardback book and then make the pieces available loose leaf and PDF to people who don't want the, the hardback, you know, they'll still be able to buy the pieces. But the first publishing of a lot of this material sounds like it's going to be part of the hardback as the hardback book, which is not the model that they've been doing on the other ones. So that's going to be kind of an interesting uh, to see how that um, plays out. Mm, lots of work. Lots of work. <laughs> but we're very, very close to the first draft of the uh, of the Avail Kingdom, uh, and that's uh, that's about a over doubling of the length of of material that covers the elves and who they are and and that. And we're gonna we're gonna do some other site development, some some new locations that have never been dis discussed before. And uh, so I think people will really enjoy that. Um, we're still a little ways away from that, so so you know we can't comment on dates or anything like that, but. Uh, it is already in progress, and we've made some really good uh, advances over the last few weeks. Yeah, well, this is some exciting stuff. Um, why don't we go ahead and wrap things up here? Um, this was a far-ranging discussion. Uh, I've kept you here far longer than I told you I would. But uh, is there anything anyone would like to plug, uh, personal writings or anything like that? Uh, when I'm not writing for freelance for uh, Columbia Games doing Harn stuff, uh, I'm doing uh, writing for the predominantly for the historicals and role playing sections over at Goonhammer.com. So head yep. over there and check that out. Excellent. I'm I'm familiar with it. <laughs> um, great. Well, I will uh, shoot you guys a copy of this once I get it edited up, and. Um, you know, thanks for, for spending your Thursday evening over here. <laughs> a big thanks to Mark, Brent, and Kerry for joining us today. Uh, this was a wide-ranging discussion about Tharda. You can find it on Kickstarter. Uh, I will link that uh, in the show notes here. Um, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, digging into how to prep the Kingdom of Kaldor uh, for your next adventure. So with that, thanks for joining us. Have a great week.